My name is Scott Grant, one of the pastors and elders at the church, and we're going to be in the book of Acts, back in the book of Acts in just a few moments. But before that, I met some visitors from Paris today, and um, can you introduce yourselves? Terry, can you introduce, introduce your friends to us? Please do. Thank you. So when I was a younger man, I lost a job. I was 27 years old, and instead of doing the prudent thing and immediately looking for another job, I decided to go on a camping trip. I decided to go on a six-week camping trip. Uh, my destination was going to be Wyoming and Montana and Idaho, that part of the world. I had never been to that part of the country before, so I was excited about this. I, that's the Holy Land, by the way. You know, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, that's the Holy Land. Uh, I threw my uh, sleeping bag and I threw my tent and I flew, threw my fly rod into my two-door hatchback and I took off. There's this old John Denver song that goes like this. He was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to a place he'd never been before. He left yesterday behind him. You might say he was born again. You might say he found a key for every door. I was hoping that something like that was happened for me. I was, in fact, in my 27th year. I was going to the Rocky Mountains. The song's Rocky Mountain High. I was going to the Rocky Mountains, a place I had never been before but had always dreamed about. I was more or less trying to leave yesterday behind me. And maybe I was going to be, in some sense, born again, although I had already been born again by faith in Christ. And uh, I was uh, heading off on this six-week adventure. And I called it a pilgrimage because I was going to the Holy Land. Now, the ultimate destination here was going to be Silver Creek near Ketchum, Idaho. I read about Silver Creek when I was about 14 years old, opening up, a, checking out a book from the library on fly fishing. And for some reason, Silver Creek just captured my imagination and I dreamed of going there. So I was going to save the best for last. I was going to go to Silver Creek. Now, my little pilgrimage was part of a larger pilgrimage because all of us who believe in Jesus walk in what the scriptures call the way. We walk in the way of the Lord or the way of salvation. And this, by the way, is what the book of Acts calls this thing we believe in more than anything else. It doesn't call it Christianity. In fact, you can look uh, throughout the Bible cover to cover and never find the word Christianity. So I try not to use it. It's not in the Bible. But the way, I really like the way. That's what they call it in the book of Acts. Sometimes called the way of the Lord. Sometimes called the way of salvation. And this implies progress, doesn't it? You're moving forward on a particular path, and you are moving toward a destination. Spiritually speaking, the destination is the new Jerusalem. And we who believe in Jesus are walking in the way, ultimately toward the new Jerusalem. So the question then is, how do we make our way in the way? How do we make our way in the way? 
So we're going to be in Acts 24 today. We were in Acts 22 earlier, a couple weeks ago, and then Nancy Ortberg uh, came and uh, gave us a great sermon last week. And so we are looking at the sermons in Acts. Now in Acts 24, the Apostle Paul appeared before this, um, this Roman tribune, and he got to defend the faith, but really he was speaking not so much to the tribune as he was to his Jewish countrymen. And the tribune now has passed him off to Felix, who is the Roman governor. And uh, we're going to be looking at what Paul then says to Felix today. So let's look at it. Acts chapter 24, beginning at verse 10. And when, and when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. A little background here. Paul comes to Jerusalem to worship. He has some opponents, some Asian Jews, who uh, they're the ones who stir up the crowd. It's not Paul who stirs up the crowd. And that uh, precipitates this series of, event, of events that eventually gets Paul before Felix. And Paul is eager to make his defense before Felix. He says, Felix, Felix, you know of all this. You have experience. You're qualified to judge. You can verify the evidence in this case. And they have no evidence. I'm just a Jew doing Jewish things. I didn't really do anything unusual out of the ordinary to create this disturbance. In fact, we're going to read later that it was these Asian Jews who created this whole disturbance that eventually got Paul before Felix. And Paul says, therefore, because you know all of these things, I can cheerfully make my defense before you. I'm happy to do this. He's also happy to do this simply because he's happy to speak about Jesus. He's happy to speak about the gospel. He's happy to speak, as we shall see, about the resurrection of the dead. He's cheerful about the whole thing, which I encourage us to be if we actually know Jesus and have been saved and our destination is the new Jerusalem, for us to be cheerful when we speak of Jesus. Some people, when they're trying to share their faith, it looks like they're angry to me. Some people, anyway. And I, I, think, put a little, I say, put a little cheer into it. This should be joyful. This is a joyful experience we have of Christ, and we want to share it based on that, uh, based on that basis, not on some angry place within us. So be cheerful about the whole thing. So Paul is cheerful. He makes his defense before Felix cheerfully. Verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and Man. So Paul says he believes in the way, and there are his opponents then who call this a sect, a deviation, a deviation from the true Jewish faith. Paul says, no, that's not the case. This is the way. This is the true way. You can go all the way back to the Hebrew scriptures, going back to the, the law and the prophets, and they all anticipated the coming of the Messiah. They anticipated the coming of Jesus, who is the Messiah. This is completely consistent with all of that and actually a fulfillment of that. So Paul makes his defense. It's a very Jewish defense. 
This is completely consistent with all of that. So it's not a sect. It's not a cult. This is the true Jewish thing. That's what Paul is telling Felix. And he says that there is going to be a resurrection of everyone at the end of the age, a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So what does he mean by that? Well, here he is echoing Jesus himself. Let's look at what Jesus says about these things in John chapter five, beginning at verse 25. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there's going to be a resurrection at the end of, end of the age of the just and the unjust and of those who have done good and of those who have done evil. But Jesus says that hour is coming, but in some sense that hour has already come. So that if you put your faith in Jesus right now, there is a spiritual resurrection. You've been born again in anticipation of the day when you will experience the resurrection of life. But this can be a little bit confusing because it almost sounds like, okay, if you do good things, there's a good result. If you do evil things, there's an evil result. If you're a just person, there's a good result. If, it's, if you're unjust, there's a bad result. What's going on with all of this? Jesus clarifies what he's talking about in John chapter 3, verse 21. Let's look at this. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These are the works that count, the works that have been carried out in God. So it's not obviously, hey, you do good stuff, you're going to heaven, you do bad stuff, you're going to hell, because we all do good stuff and bad stuff. Here's what Jesus is saying, is that the only good works, the only good deeds that count are those that emerge from a relationship with God. God doesn't care about the rest. So there are a lot of people who think, well, if there is a God and if there is some sort of judgment at the end, it's going to be based on whether I was a good person or not. That is a lie of the devil. It's a bunch of rubbish because those good deeds do not count. God does not care about them. He cares about good deeds. Yes, he cares about people doing good things that emerge from a relationship with him. Those are the good deeds that count. So there is going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. The just are those who have given their allegiance to Christ and whose good works emerge from that relationship and they will rise to a resurrection of life and then there is going to be a judgment of resurrection for the, for the unjust, those who are not justified in Christ, who have not given their allegiance to Christ and their good deeds, so-called, count for nothing. So that's what's going to happen at the end of the age. A resurrection of both the just and the unjust, those who believe and those who don't believe, those who have given their allegiance to Christ and those who have not given their allegiance to Christ. 
Look at what uh, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him, that is Jesus, whom he has sent. This is the work. All the work that you do begins with this, believing in Christ. And then the good work emerges out of that, emerges out of this loving relationship that you have because you've opened your heart to the love of God and you understand you've been forgiven and now you're following Jesus. Oh yes, God really values that. So what about as we walk in the way? How do we walk in the way of the Lord, also called the way of salvation? First of all, Usually you have to leave that which is familiar, that which is comfortable, and you have to follow Jesus on the way or in the way. So think of Abraham. Abraham could have stayed in Haran, but he left moving toward the promised land, not knowing where he was going. He had to leave the familiar. Think of Lucy. Lucy opened that, that wardrobe door right? And she could have stayed in the bedroom. Instead, she walked through the door and entered Narnia. Think of Sam and Frodo. They could have stayed in the Shire. Instead, they left the Shire and they set out for Rivendell and ultimately Mount Doom. You have to leave the familiar. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about a geographical place, What's required as you walk in the way of the Lord is that you move from one place in your heart to another, that you move to a place of deeper trust, leaving the familiar, moving forward, trusting the Lord for the unknown, trusting the Lord even in despicable, difficult circumstances. We know the destination the destination is the new Jerusalem, but we do not know what awaits us on the way, which makes for sometimes exhilarating experiences and sometimes frightening experiences because you don't know what awaits you on the way. The, the way of the Lord is not without moments of despair, which may tempt us to wander off course for relief, Neither is the way of the Lord without moments of boredom, which may cause you or may tempt you to wander off course for some kind of excitement. So as you make your way in the Lord, in the way of the Lord, there is going to be opportunities for course correction, shall we say. And the Lord helps you do this. If the Holy Spirit is with you, you will from time to time hear things and feel things and people would come up to you and say, is this really the right way? Listen to uh, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. And there will also be times when you want to return to that which is familiar, just like the Israelites of old wanted to return to Egypt. What is it that keeps us going in the way? What is it that keeps us from wandering off course and moving forward toward the new Jerusalem? One word, at least for me, maybe for you also. Desire. Desire. I want. Do you want? Probably, you're human, you want. What do you want? I don't always know what I want, but I know that I want. 
And I also know, based on the scriptures and based on experience, that what I want is found in the way of the Lord. Because I've wandered off course before. That's not the place to go. That's not the place to find life. What I want is not found over there. I know that what I want is found in the way of the Lord, which is marked out for me in the gospels by Jesus. It's marked out for me in the scriptures to walk in the way of the Lord, to, to, to really get ultimately what I truly want. And I know it's found in the way. Maybe I'll find it ah, the next time I open up the Bible. Maybe I'll find it when I lift up my prayers in the morning. Maybe I'll find it when I come here to worship with you on a Sunday morning. Maybe I'll find it Sunday, Sunday afternoon when some friends come over and we break bread together. Uh, maybe I'll find it, I often find it, when I'm not looking for it at all. It just sneaks up on me. I see something of the Lord and it's, and it's beautiful. Uh, maybe I'll find it when I reach out to a stranger or when a stranger reaches out to me. You never know when you're going to find what you want, even if you don't know what you want. It's there to be found, there to be experienced in the way of the Lord. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the, the heavenly Jerusalem. The new, you've already come there. Now, wait a second. I thought we were journeying toward the new Jerusalem. And now the writer of Hebrews tells us that in some sense, we have already come there. Well, what did Jesus say? The hour is coming, but in some sense, the hour has already come. That means that in the present, that we can taste and experience something of the new Jerusalem here and now, at least occasionally, as we move our way toward the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem exerts its influence. It's out there, but somehow it's here too. And that means we can get every once in a while glimpses and whiffs and whispers of the new Jerusalem. And what does that do? When you get one of these, it keeps you going. It keeps you walking in the way because you never know when you're going to get another one. It might be just around the bend. You might get another glimpse or whiff or whisper of the new Jerusalem. So in the Chronicles of Narnia, the children are in Narnia and then they're getting this breeze. Listen to this. The children suddenly feel a breeze from Aslan's country blow over them, lasting only a second. It brought both a smell and a sound, a musical sound. Edmund and Eustace would never talk about it afterward. Lucy could only say, it would break your heart. With just a momentary touch of the breeze from the far country, they were overcome with longing. So here's what you need to do. When you get a glimpse, when you get a whiff, when you get a whisper, you need to do this because you know that that glimpse is just fleeting. It's just like that, that touch of the breeze in Narnia. It's here and it's gone. And you know that that's not the case in the New Jerusalem. But if all of that is coming from the New Jerusalem and is here somehow in the present and you get a whiff of the New Jerusalem, you have to say to yourself, you have to ask the question, if it's this good here for just a moment, 
how much better is it going to be there for all eternity? So keep on walking in the way of the Lord, friends. On my pilgrimage to the Holy Land, that is Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, it didn't start out very well. The first few weeks, the weather was lousy and I was lonely. I had to fight off inclement weather and loneliness and it rained for significant parts of pretty much every day for the first two and a half weeks, and I was miserable. It didn't help that my little pup tent, my little flimsy pup tent, wasn't exactly waterproof. So many mornings I woke up to puddles, if I woke up at all, because sometimes I didn't go to sleep because the rain was keeping me up, and I was wet, and I was cold, and it was not, it was a miserable experience. I was not literally a happy camper. One day, however, I was excited because I did not hear any raindrops against the outside of my tent, and I did not see any puddles inside my tent. Oh, this is going to be a good day. I unzipped my tent, and I walked out to observe a full-on snowstorm. Here's a picture of my tent. Looks kind of sad, doesn't it? Like a, a lonely guy has no place to sleep. He's got this tent. You can't even sleep in the tent anymore. There's snow covering over. It was a, it's, a, it's a sad picture. But it's also a little bit scary, to be honest with you, at the time. Because when I left, I counted on a few raindrops, but I didn't count on any snow. And I didn't have any tire chains. So I had to break camp really quickly and then head to lower ground. Nevertheless, despite my miserable experience the first few weeks, there were a few moments here and there that were glorious. Uh, you know, the, the, the rainstorms put a damper on my outings on, to the streams, but every once in a while the rain clouds cleared and I could go to the stream and fish for beautiful trout. And there, were some, there was just some, some nice moments. And then furthermore, there were these serendipitous encounters with fellow travelers which really lifted my spirits. There was this fellow by the name of Phil. He was traveling in an RV in Yellowstone National Park, and he invited me inside, and he shared with me his cookies and his coffee, and we talked and we ate and we drank, and then there, were, there was a couple from Wyoming, Casper, Wyoming. I think their names were Brock and Lynn, and they saw me probably all by myself alone in my little tent in my little camp area, and they invited me over, to sh and they shared their campfire with me, and we talked the night away. And then uh, on the Yellowstone River, I met a fellow by the name of Tom and some of his friends. And they sort of invite, they took me under their wing and they invited me to go fishing with them. And so we fished together for a few days. So each of these encounters lifted my spirits. And what happened on this trip, though I was miserable at the first, is that I, my perspective began to change. I moved from one place in my heart to the other. I began to accept Everything is coming from the Lord, both the sunshine and the rain. So, for example, if it was raining really hard, I became especially thankful for cafes. And I would go into cafes, I would dry out, I would read, I would study, I would reflect, I would write, I would pray. I became very thankful for cafes. And when uh, it was sunshine, then I was especially thankful for the sunshine, which allowed me to go out to the streams again. 
And in this pilgrimage, by the way, the ultimate destination, the ultimate idea was not to catch trout. It was to seek the Lord in beautiful places. And so I began to do that more and more. So back to Paul. What happens to him? What does he say? Verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else these men themselves, these are from the Jewish council who are there, they should say what, that the wrongdoing they found when I stood up before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is, with, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial this day. And Paul says, bring the evidence. Okay, I'm happy to hear the evidence. These Asian Jews, they have a problem with me. Okay, let's hear from them. Oh, they're not here. Oh, how about the members of the Jewish council? Some of them are here. They brought some accusations. I'm happy to hear from them, but they don't seem to be too willing to speak either. So Paul is saying all of this is happening without evidence. I was just doing normal Jewish things, coming to the temple and worshiping. Maybe there are a few different things that I did that weren't exactly consistent with everything they expected, but it was completely Jewish. So give me a break, you know, like bring the evidence if you have any evidence against me. And what does he do? Again, he makes it about the resurrection of the dead. Now, here's what Paul believes. He doesn't really say this. He doesn't really talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but that's what he believes in, obviously. He believes that God has raised Christ from the dead, sort of in the middle of time, in anticipation of God raising everyone from the dead at the end of the age. At this particular juncture, he emphasizes the resurrection of the dead, the general resurrection of the dead, for everyone. Now, it's very interesting to me that Paul makes all of this, and especially toward the end of Acts, you see that the emphasis really is on the resurrection of the dead, not so much on the crucifixion. Indeed, the crucifixion is vitally important, but without the resurrection, the crucifixion doesn't mean anything because it didn't really accomplish anything. Jesus had to rise from the dead to show that that was real, of course, and then he had to rise from the dead so that all of us also could rise from the dead. Which raises the question then, what happens to the unjust and what happens to the just? Let's consider then what happens to the unjust. Paul says there's going to be a resurrection of the unjust. Jesus says those who have done evil are going to be resurrected to a resurrection of judgment. Now, it's interesting to me that in the book of Acts, especially, there is not a whole lot of emphasis on what this judgment looks like. You have Peter earlier in the book of Acts talking about people who don't believe being destroyed from among the people. You have Paul saying that scoffers will perish, but they don't really spell out what that means. So it's kind of interesting that they don't go into any details. Nevertheless, that language in particular anticipates Paul's later wording in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Let's look at this. This is the most concrete definition we have in all of the scriptures about what awaits those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. 
They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. What does this verse say? Punishment, it is ongoing and eternal. It is away from the presence and power of God. That's what awaits the unjust, those who have not been justified in Jesus Christ, those who have not given their allegiance to Christ. Now, if that's the case, that seems to me that's pretty scary stuff. And you would think that the preachers in the book of Acts would spell that out for us a little bit, but they don't. To be honest with you, I'm not sure what to make of it, but I do make this of it. If they don't deem it necessary to talk about eternal condemnation then it is not necessary for us in all cases as part of our witness for Christ to share also about eternal condemnation. It may be advisable in some cases, but it is not necessary in all cases. If they don't do it, I don't think we have to do it either, but we should be sensitive to the spirit. It may be advisable in some cases. For example, Timothy Keller, who was this pastor in uh, New York, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, he died about a year ago. And he tells the story of one time when he was sharing the gospel with a man and uh, the subject of hell came up and hell just didn't connect with this person. He said that the, the images of fire and all of this, that's, I don't connect, I don't understand that. That seems very silly to me. Imagery of fire. And then what Keller did is he read for him a quote from C.S. Lewis, which says this. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can, when you can no longer then there, will, then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. So how did the man react to these words from C.S. Lewis? Keller says this, to my surprise, he got very quiet and said, now that scares me to death. He almost immediately began to see that hell was A, perfectly fair and just, and B, something that he realized he might be headed for if he didn't change. What happens to the just. What is the hope of the just? Those who have been justified in Christ, those who have given their allegiance to Christ, they will rise from the dead, not to be judged, but to be vindicated by God for their faith and for their good deeds, which have been wrought in a relationship with God. We are headed for the new Jerusalem. That's what's going to happen. We're going to experience the new Jerusalem, which is going to be coming down out of heaven from God. And what does the new Jerusalem look like? Well, for a vision of that, look at John's vision in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 22, 5. He's given this vision of the new Jerusalem. Now, I don't think necessarily that it's going to look exactly like that. So if you don't resonate with that description, I say try this, because you can only hope for what you desire. 
right? A lot of people don't really hope for heaven because they don't see it as something that's very good. They don't want to give up this life on earth. But really, heaven is earth enhanced. And so, you know, the vision of heaven, what, who wants to be a fat cherub floating around in a cloud somewhere? No, you, you don't desire that. You can't hope for that. So, you want to be a fat cherub? Okay, well, okay, you can do that then. Because here I'm giving you permission to do that, okay? Here's what you need to do. Here's what I suggest. Remember the best of what you have experienced here on earth up to this point. Anticipate the best of what you hope to experience in the future. Combine the best of what you have experienced with the best of what you hope for and that's your vision of the new Jerusalem. For example, here's my vision of the new Jerusalem. Personally, me, what I connect with. It's going to be a Tuscan hill town. <laughs> it's going to be teeming with life. There's going to be, it's going to be surrounded by mountains and hills and, and the sea and, and a vineyard and, of course, on the outskirts, a trout stream. And every feature and every moment is going to be an occasion for worship because I'm going to have a new heart. I'm going to have new eyes. I'm going to have new ears, new faculties, which are going to be able to appreciate everything the way I can't appreciate those things now. And, uh, of course, he's going to be there the carpenter, the winemaker, the rabbi. And we're going to sit down at table with him. And we're going to break bread with him. And I'm going to look at him. He's going to break the bread. He's going to pour the wine. I think there just might be a little smile on his face. And I'm going to look into his eyes. And I might look for a long time and I'm going to know. I'm just going to know that everything is okay. Combine the best of what you have experienced with the best of what you hope for and now believe this. It's going to be better than that. Because God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond everything we can hope or ask for or think. May I ask those of you who have not yet placed your allegiance in Jesus Christ to do so? Here's the first thing you need to do. You need to turn away from the road that you are on right now. Because that road is leading to destruction. Turn away from that road. Give your allegiance to Christ. You will experience the forgiveness of sins. And then join us as we walk in the way. And join Jesus on the way. Because after all, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Finally, on my pilgrimage, I was heading towards Silver Creek. The weather had broken. It was sunshine now. Oh, this was going to be glorious. So, I hoped anyway. So I'm heading north on Highway 75, a scenic highway in 
Idaho. And then I take a left onto this dirt road and I climb up into the hills and then I flatline on these hills and I'm overlooking this valley and I see it. I've dreamed about it since I was 14. I'm now 27. And for the first time, I see Silver Creek. I didn't take this photo, but here's what I saw. <laughs> it was radiant, all dressed up in its fall colors. And it took my breath away. Parked my car. Made my way down for the, to the stream, second cast, 16-inch rainbow trout. <laughs> I went back every day for seven days. Never saw a rain cloud cast to these large rainbow and brown trout for seven days straight. It was awesome. It was glorious. And then the strangest thing happened. On the seventh day, number of completeness, by the way, seven days, I pull up to the stream, I open my car door, put on my waders, zip up my fly fishing vest, get my rod, start walking to the stream, take a few steps toward the stream, and I was arrested by this awful sensation. I felt as if I were going to work. I finally got tired of it the place I dreamed about for all those years and arrived at, and it exceeded my expectations. I finally got tired of it. At that point, I realized I needed to head back to California and look for a job. <laughs> Silver Creek was awesome, but no, it was not the new Jerusalem. But it was a whiff. It was a glimpse. It was a whisper, a very strong glimpse, whiff, and whisper of the new Jerusalem. I wonder if you've ever experienced something like that. If you haven't, I'm sure that you will if you keep following Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, walk in the way of the Lord and be watchful for those glimpses, whispers, and whiffs. Would you please stand as we continue to worship? Jesus says that the hour has already come. The hour is coming, but the hour has come in some sense. The new Jerusalem, it's still to come. We're journeying toward it, but in some sense, we have already arrived here. Some sense it's already here. And here's the way Paul puts it. He says, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a pledge or a down payment of our eternal inheritance, which means that we can taste something of our eternal inheritance right now in the presence because the Holy Spirit is here. So, therefore, we sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Your glory, Lord, is what our hearts long for.